Welcome everyone to The Lighthouse, a podcast series dedicated to providing advanced financial planning and wellness insights to the clients and families we serve. My name is Jack Butler, and my business partner, John Stanford, and I are financial advisors with the Hatteras Wealth Management Group at UBS, located at 6100 Fairview Road office in Charlotte, North Carolina. I'm joined today by Justin Waring, who's an investment strategist with the UBS Global Wealth Management Chief Investment Office. Justin and his team recently published a report titled, Why Bother Investing Outside the U.S., which I thought is a great topic for today's show. So Justin, thanks so much for being with us today on the Lighthouse Podcast. Thanks for having me. We are glad to have you. And I think your audience is going to gain a lot of value around hearing your thoughts about the importance of being globally diversified. We had Justin on the show last year to talk about behavioral finance, which was a very popular episode. So if anyone in the audience hasn't listened to that episode yet, I would highly encourage you to do so. But Justin, for those who aren't as familiar with you or your background, could you just share with us an overview of your career and current role within the Chief Investment Office at UBS to start? All right. Yeah. Thank you, Jack. And I'm really glad to be here. I think it's kind of interesting to note that I was born in the U.S., but I actually grew up in the Netherlands. I came back to the U.S. for for college, and since graduating, I've been working at UBS in a number of different roles, working with families to help them achieve their goals. In the Chief Investment Office, our focus is on building tools and strategies that help build and manage portfolios that are resilient to market volatility and aligned with each family's unique objectives. If I had to wrap up our work in a phrase, I'd say we're trying to remove the role of luck in investment success. I like that. Yeah, that's, that's a great way of putting it. And clearly, we rely heavily on you and your team's content and intellectual capital that we use to not only form our investment theses for clients, but also the content that we provide clients on a regular basis to make more sense of the, of the crazy world that's, that's around us. So, uh, and, and clearly we, as a team, uh, very much believe in the importance of diversification and the role that international exposure plays in a portfolio. But I'm just going to do my best for the sake of this conversation Justin, and just put on my devil's advocate hat and just kind of ask you some questions that clients have posed to us over the years, which I think are important ones. But to start off, I think it's important to kind of differentiate international versus emerging market. And as we're referring to this space, what really we're, we're talking about. So can you start off just as a, a one-on-one level of, of the difference between you know, developed and non-developed markets and maybe a, for, for clients to better understand that? Yeah, I think the first thing to note is that there's some troublesome history with the phrases developed and emerging markets. If you're familiar with the terms first world and third world, those are basically with how were these countries aligned with the US or the Soviet Union during the Cold War. And, you know, obviously there are many ways to measure a country's development and they're definitely not very precise. So for example, countries that probably should be called developed like South Korea are still in the emerging markets camp, despite being from an economic perspective, a very developed market. In general, with all of that caveat being said, a developed economy is one where many of its companies are public, publicly traded, there's free access to markets, and emerging markets are areas where they're still developing their financialization and developing their financial markets. So you may have a, you know, a more select list of companies available uh, in the public markets there. Right, okay, good, good. I appreciate you laying the groundwork for us on that. And then to kind of start off, I have to just bring up First and foremost, performance, the U.S. market versus international and, and emerging markets, uh, especially recently. I mean, over the last decade, 
U.S. stocks have returned over 300%. International or developed international has returned about 53%. And emerging markets has returned around 40%. So, I mean, gosh, just looking at the last 10 years, I mean, U.S. has significantly outperformed everything else. So why not just own a higher weighting of, of U.S. and I just call it a day for, from there? Any insight around that would be appreciated. Yeah, it's it's interesting. So since 2008 in the global financial crisis, we've definitely seen U.S. outperform. The U.S., we'll talk about this throughout this conversation, but the U.S. is more heavily weighted towards technology companies, consumer companies like uh, Amazon and Walmart and all these major behemoths, and less allocated to energy and financials stocks. And energy and financials got hit very hard during the global financial crisis. If you wind back the tape a little bit and go back to 1999, the previous decade, 1999 to 2007, let's pick that period, the U.S. was only up 38% because it was in the middle of the tech bubble. International developed stocks were up 91% and emerging markets rallied 408%. So if you actually, if you take all of that time period since 1999 to the end of 2021, emerging markets have actually outperformed the U.S. by over 100%. And so, you know, I think it all depends on which time frame you're looking at. There has been a lot of leadership change between technology companies and energy companies in particular, and that's driven a lot of this relative performance. Another major factor has been the role of the U.S. dollar. If the U.S. dollar is strengthening, that's a headwind for U.S. investors' holdings in international stocks because a strengthening dollar means a weakening foreign currency. And uh, if you own those stocks and their foreign currency drops, that's a headwind to your return. By contrast, in periods where the dollar is weakening, that tends to be a tailwind to international stocks and they tend to outperform. And so that's been another major factor in in this uh, leadership transition over the last two decades. So what would you say about U.S. companies that do a lot of business internationally, thus saying that there's some degree of diversification internationally just through that alone, whether it's Starbucks, Apple, McDonald's, I mean, you name the company that does a tremendous amount of business overseas, why not just get exposed to you know international from, from, from just U.S. domestic companies in, in that regard? Yeah, it's certainly true that the U.S. you know has a lot of companies that have a lot of international revenue. U.S. is a popular place to base your business. Uh, when we look at U.S. multinational firms separate from more domestically focused firms, we do see a higher correlation with international stocks. On the surface, this seems to support the idea that multinational companies are a watered-down way of accessing international returns. But even so, we see three main reasons why U.S. multinationals aren't a good replacement for holding international stocks. First, if geographic domicile doesn't matter, and that's an implicit assumption if you're viewing these multinational companies' foreign revenue as a replacement for international companies' revenue in those same markets, if you do believe that the geographic domicile doesn't matter, where, where the company's base doesn't matter, then we should still favor companies with the most attractive fundamentals, regardless of where they're headquartered. So in a world where U.S. stock market valuations are above average and profit margins are, are elevated, international stocks will look a lot more attractive. After all, they've got a lot more room to grow their profit margins and their valuations have room to expand. This is one reason why we expect international stock returns to outstrip U.S. returns by about 2% a year over the next several business cycles. You know, the second point being international stocks have a dramatically different composition than the U.S. market. As I mentioned before, there's a different weight to financials and energy versus technology. And in many ways, these other countries' markets provide diversification away from the heavily concentrated U.S. market that has become really dominated by a handful of, of mega cap tech companies. 
as we saw in the tech bubble, you know, it can be devastating if one sector starts to underperform and your stock market is overly concentrated in that sector. And then the third point, I think, is that in a deglobalizing world, there are risks for companies that are multinationals with foreign exposure because they can be disproportionately impacted by protectionist policies such as tariffs. And so if we go and buy companies domiciled across the globe but have a large share of revenue from their domestic markets, it helps to protect us against the risk of a deglobalizing world. And it helps us to build a globally diversified portfolio that is going to give us access to the extra return that we can expect from these other markets. That's, that's a great point. And so what about the notion that when the United States as a market and economy sneezes, the rest of the world catches a cold? And on, on the reverse, people have said in this industry throughout the years that very hard for you know, the United States to import other countries' problems happening around uh, the world, at least from a market and economic perspective. So when the U.S. markets go down, the rest of the markets tend to go down with it. And so how often is it that international, you know, say if the U.S. markets go down 20%, international is down 12 how often does international do really well when the United States markets are subsiding and thus helping that degree of diversification you need from a return standpoint? It's a good question. I think it depends on which market you look at because each country and each market has its own unique characteristics. I think it's notable that the U.S. is is probably not by any means the highest returning stock market in the world, and it's also not the most defensive stock market in the world. So having other countries and having diversification does help you to sort of smooth the ride out. That's definitely uh, clear when we look at the returns. Recently, obviously, we've seen, you know, the U.S. be the epicenter of a, of a lot of, of major sell-offs. And it is true that, that obviously those cause global recessions. The U.S. is a major part of the global economy. So the tech bubble was actually a largely U.S.-centered sell-off, and it took the U.S. a lot longer to recover than most other markets. As I mentioned before, emerging markets did very, very well in the aftermath of the tech crash. By contrast, the global financial crisis was in many ways centered uh, in the U.S., but there were definitely a lot of symptoms in Europe that took longer to resolve. So I don't think it's really true. It's it's definitely a nice phrase that when the U.S. sneezes, the rest of the world catches the cold. I don't think that's necessarily true. It depends on what the source of of the risk is. So as we record this podcast here at the beginning of 2022, the U.S. stock market is underperforming most other markets. Being the epicenter of a risk-off move in companies that have really benefited from falling interest rates. So if we go into an environment where the cause of the sell-off is inflation pressure and too much growth (laughs) and uh, not enough supply, sort of these inflationary pressures and rising rate pressures, the rest of the globe has a higher allocation to energy and financial sectors, which are better poised to benefit from those trends, whereas the U.S. has a large allocation to tech stocks, which have benefited from falling interest rates and would be hurt by a, a, a rise in interest rates. And so that's sort of what we're seeing this year. Yeah, I think that those, are, those are all great points. And I think uh, throughout history, we've heard from clients who have shared this with us that you know, there, there are some commonalities and forces behind a, a country's growth rate and financial markets and the degree to which they experience success in that regard. And, and those tend to be around capitalism, right? And focusing on you know, growing the private sector instead of the public sector, entrepreneurship, innovation, personal property rights, functioning democracy, 
rule of law, demographic trends, just to name a few. And so we've had some clients who who have done a lot of work over in Europe with the line of work that they're in. And they commented that based on their own experience, that they're just not under the impression that a lot of people in, in Europe work that hard, or it's not very innovative. It's not, it's not as industrious as, as maybe the United States is in, in that regard. And uh, also clients at times comment and wonder about the lack of innovation that they see you know, coming from from Europe. So those are all stigmas that are just perceptions that people have had. And I guess they then conclude that, well, because Europe is very different than the United States in a lot of those areas, then you know it, it must not bode well for, for good financial markets going forward. But what, what is your take on, on that and just Europe in, in general and the, uh, the potential for growth that it has behind it longer term? Any thoughts around that would be, uh, would be appreciated. Yeah, I think it's interesting because you listed you listed a number of different things that maybe if you think, you know, so I grew up in Europe and I, I have a little bit of personal experience with the differentiation between different countries within Europe. They have different levels of personal property rights and different levels of entrepreneurship. The Netherlands is a fairly entrepreneurial country in contrast to France, for example. But even those are generalizations. There are a lot of entrepreneurs that are working in, in both markets. But you mentioned demographic trends, and I think that's important. When we're talking about international markets, demographic trends tend to be the most favorable in markets that actually are still developing, you know, to, you know, I don't, I'm not sure that every country will end up being a democracy by any means, but certainly improving rule of law and trying to improve the quality of life for their citizens, the demographic trends that are most favorable for growth tend to be in the markets that are still working on developing for lack of a better word. And again, we talked about, you know, maybe the, the loaded history of, of that phrase. And so I think it's important to note that, you know, you've got to have a diversified allocation because you never know which of these markets is going to produce the next big win. And I'm also, you know, obviously there's an idea in financial markets that narrative follows performance. And I do think that a lot of the times we tell ourselves stories to try to explain why recent performance has happened. So U.S. market has been very, very strong for a long time. And we're starting to talk to investors who just expect that to continue forever. A similar thing has happened before in other markets. You know, the Japanese in the 1980s and early 90s, they were eating the lunch of everyone else. They were, you know, more industrious. They were, they had just better company management. And all of that was just kind of trying to explain why they were so successful. And it turned out that that wasn't a trend that could last forever. Those companies suffered a, a major stock bubble and the economy has struggled under a demographic burden as well. So I, I think that, you know, there's nowhere that it's written that the U.S. will outperform forever. And some of these other markets, you know, have been, you know, on the forefront of innovation, such as like the Green Revolution and in infrastructure spending and their major trading partners with China and are benefiting from the rise of, of the uh, Chinese economy. So I, I, not to mention China itself, which doesn't have democracy, but has very favorable demographics in terms of you know growing population and a growing middle class. And they are rivaling the U.S. in many ways with, when it comes to technology. So I think at the end of the day, if I had to pick just one stock market to buy, then I would probably choose the U.S. It's already 60% of the global market cap. And it's fairly diversified, although it's become less so in recent years. But the good news is that we don't have to choose just one market. And we don't have to choose just markets that are democracies or just countries that have positive demographic trends. We can get it all. And it's relatively cheap to do that these days because all of these different markets have provided open access to, to capital. 
And so it's great. We don't have to choose. I think if we were having this conversation 30 or 40 years ago before index funds were so available and, and before access to you know active managers that are able to pick the winners in these areas were available, it would have been a lot harder to make a decision because you know it is very difficult to, to identify which country will outperform next. And uh, history suggests that, and, and there's just been obviously extensive research around the fact that you, you can't time when certain economies, countries, markets get hot and cool off and how long they stay in those trends. And and I think it's always the time to take caution when you start having this perception that one market, whether it's the US or any other, is going to significantly outperform everything else forever. It's, it's never the case. And, and so I, you brought up something that made me think about valuations and the fact that in the US market is you know, historically a little bit more expensive than it has been over a you know past several decades. But then you look at international and emerging markets and it's significantly more attractive from a valuation standpoint. So if you could speak to that for a little bit, I think that'd be helpful. And also just how much of that is warranted though. I mean there there are there are companies and markets in the world that are cheap for a reason. And so how much of that is, is being factored into the uh, international emerging market space? Yeah, I think when we compare valuations across markets, it's important to, to recognize that some sectors and some companies are going to trade at a different valuation than other sectors and companies. So energy stocks don't have a lot of earnings growth. And so they trade at a lower valuation to today's earnings. Today's earnings look a lot like tomorrow's earnings, right? But a tech company that's growing at six or 7% a year, today's earnings don't look like tomorrow's earnings. So it's going to look, at, it's going to look expensive if you just look at the price to today's earnings. That's oversimplifying a little bit, but essentially, if you've got lots of your earnings in the future because of compounding growth, then you're going to look more expensive today. And so economies and markets that have a higher allocation to technology stocks, for example, will look more expensive than economies and markets that have a higher allocation to energy stocks or financial stocks, stocks that tend to grow at the pace of, of economic growth and not above the pace of economic growth. So with that caveat being said, if we look at the price to book ratio for different markets, the US is trading at five times the, the value of its companies, basically bricks and mortar, which is the most expensive it's been in 15 years. By contrast, if we look at basically any other market, the, the valuations are a lot lower. The UK trades at 1.8 times France trades at 2.1 times, Germany trades at 1.7 times, Japan trades at 1.4 times. And some of these markets have been this expensive in the past, have been expensive as the US in the past. And that led to a lot of underperformance, which is why their valuations are where they are today. So valuation expansion is a tailwind to returns. And so if you buy a cheap market, you've got a tailwind. Valuation contraction, if, if the U.S. goes from expensive to cheap, that doesn't necessarily mean that it'll be losses, but that's going to be headwind to returns. And so that's price to book. If we look at price to earnings, the U.S. is, is trading at about 23 times uh, this year's earnings, which is versus 15 times earnings for the EU and 12 times earnings for emerging markets. So it's the U.S. is trading almost twice as expensive as emerging market on a price to earnings basis. And the earnings growth has been substantial in the U.S. The U.S. has, has a long track record uh, recently of outgrowing the rest of the globe, and that's been a large part to the technology companies. But as we're seeing now, companies that already have 
a huge market share, they can't possibly grow it. They can't continue to grow at that pace. I think we're, you know, we look at, you know, I don't have, I'm not saying anything in particular about our outlook for individual companies, but if we look at the business models for, for Meta, which is originally called Facebook, and if we look at Roblox, for example, these are companies that have built a huge share of the potential audience. I think Roblox, because of the pandemic, they were getting the eyes and uh, fingertips of almost all the children in the United States for hours a day. That's, you know, it's going to be difficult to to uh, to grow as fast as they've been growing recently. And so I think that, you know, when we look at these different markets, that's going to be a major factor into where the valuations go in the future. And if growth slows, then, then the U.S. companies, for example, will demand a less demanding valuation, and that could be a headwind to their returns going forward. To your point, Justin, I mean, nothing outperforms everything else forever. And it may be the case for a five or 10 year period, which is like what we've seen with the big tech companies over the last decade, that phenomenon doesn't always take place. And just in the technology sector alone, you brought up Japan earlier, there's this amazing chart that showed the 10 biggest technology companies in the world by decade. And Mm -hmm. in 1990, 80% of them were Japanese. And then uh, the year 2000, about 70% uh, of those were no longer on the list, right? So there's there's seven new companies and three that, that still existed. And then, you know, in the year 2010, about 70% of them were, were new again. 2020, the exact same phenomenon. And so what could be very successful and, and hot right now doesn't really necessarily mean it's going to continue to be that way in the future, let alone 10 years from now. But the reality is that our clients are investing not just for a five or 10 year period, they're investing in many cases for a 30, 40 year plus horizon. And it's just so... It's just so it's very hard to grasp that and understand it because this is my last this is my last question for you is just you know can you just talk about the the feelings that an investor has when 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 they are diversified and they look at you know their their accounts and maybe their large cap US has done incredibly well mid caps done great small caps done great but international maybe not, you know not so much is that a normal feeling in being a diversified investor the, the feeling and notion of you're almost like as if you're missing out. If you could speak to that for a few moments to close, I think that would be uh, beneficial. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think the, the most important thing to recognize is that investing is uncomfortable. <laughs> it always is. Diversification doesn't necessarily make you feel that that less uncomfortable. There's always going to be something in your portfolio you don't like. There's always going to be something that, that you own or that your friend owns that you wish you had owned more of. Your portfolio is never going to be the best performing strategy out there because you're diversified. And that's kind of the point. You're always going to be kind of middle of the pack. You're going to have consistent growth over time. And I think it's important for diversified investors to recognize it. I like to quote Winston Churchill. You know, he always said that democracy is the worst form of government except for all the others. I say the same thing about diversification. It's the worst investment strategy except for all the others. It's really the only uh, way to make sure that you own some of the winners and you don't own too much of the losers. And uh, I, I just want to give one example, actually, that's salient right now. A couple of weeks ago, when we published a report about global diversification, we looked at all of the different markets and how they performed from December 1998. The best performing stock market since uh, over that period of time from December 1998 to 2021 was Russia. It was up 2,151%. And I bet if you thought the Russian stock market was your benchmark, owning anything else would have felt 
like you were an idiot for that for a lot of that time. But then we just saw Russia experience the largest one day loss in in modern history as a result of them invading Ukraine. If you were over allocated to Russia because you were hope you were chasing that performance, well guess what? You're not outperforming anymore. And I think obviously we're in a very extreme situation with Russia and Ukraine, but no market outperforms forever and it's important to have a diversified portfolio and then also to keep your eye on a representative benchmark. Don't look at the S&P 500, don't look at you know the Dow or the Nasdaq. Look at a diversified benchmark and ask your financial advisor to keep you centered in on your goals as the real benchmark because at the end of the day there's no solution to the discomfort of investing. As many of our clients understand it's not only one of the greatest wealth creation preservation strategies that exists out there and and being diversified and having a long-term approach and staying the course and not being reactive to what's happening around the world especially around forces that we we can't control um but there's a there's a cost to it it's just optimistically an an emotional one because you you almost at times feel helpless around all these forces that you know you, you have little to no control over but when you're able to be diversified spread your risk stay the course, it, it often ends up being very successful over a, a long period of time. So I think these are all important points. So really just wanted to remind the audience that um, I know we've talked a lot with Justin today. Just wanted to remind the audience if they have any questions about anything that we covered, uh, please feel free to contact me or John and be happy to um, to uh, relay those questions to Justin's team if need be. Uh, but we appreciate you, Justin, joining us today. Thank you again for your time. Thanks for having me. And again, if uh, the audience has any questions about anything else, feel free to contact us anytime. And uh, we appreciate you listening to the show today. Disclaimer, neither UBS Financial Services, Inc. nor any of its employees provide tax or legal advice. You should consult with your personal tax or legal advisor regarding your personal circumstances. Diversification does not guarantee a profit or protect against loss in a declining market. International and emerging markets investments involve considerations and potential risks not typically associated with domestic securities, including risks associated with changes in currency values, economic, political, and social conditions, loss of market liquidity, the regulatory environment of the countries in which a fund invests, and difficulties in receiving current or accurate information. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients, UBS Financial Services, Inc. offers investment advisory services in its capacity as an SEC-registered investment advisor and brokerage services in its capacity as an SEC-registered broker-dealer. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, different material ways, and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. It is important that you understand the ways in which we conduct business and that you carefully read the agreements and disclosures that we provide to you about the products or services we offer. For more information, please review client relationship summary provided at UBS.com slash relationship summary or ask your UBS financial advisor for a copy. UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG, member, member FINRA, member SIPC, This information is being provided to you for your information purposes only and does not constitute a recommendation or an endorsement by UBS Financial Services, Inc. of the author, the securities or views stated herein. Any specific securities discussed should not be considered a recommendation or solicitation to buy or sell any particular security. You should not assume that any investment in any of the securities was or will be profitable.